Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske, and today is our legal roundtable. It's a chance to discuss the important local legal issues of the past month with a panel of experts. And this month, that includes Mark Smith. He's the Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University and also a lawyer. Uh, Mark Smith, welcome to the show. Well, good to see you again. And Bill Freivogel is here with us again today. He's a professor at the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, and he too is a lawyer. Bill, welcome to the program. Hi. And finally, this month, we're joined by Nicole Gorovsky. She's a former federal prosecutor and also currently an attorney in private practice. She's handled some really high-profile cases. Her firm is Gorovsky Law. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, we've got a lot to discuss today, and I want to start by talking about something that happened this fall, and it didn't really seem to get much attention at the time, and I think it's potentially a huge problem for the state of Missouri. In August of 2018, a Cole County jury awarded state corrections officers a staggering $113 million. The issue is that corrections officers were required to do certain things before they clocked in and then again after they clocked out. They allege that those tasks added up to at least 30 minutes of work every day, and that's work they were doing off the clock. And they argued successfully that 13,000 of them should have been paid for that work, and that added up to $113 million. So that was in 2018. And what happened this fall, the state appealed that verdict, and this this fall they lost. The ruling was unanimous, um, and that means their one chance here is going to be the Missouri Supreme Court. I'm wondering, does our panel see an issue here for the Supreme Court to jump in and save us, or are we on the hook for $113 million? Mark Smith. Yeah, so uh, I don't see an issue. Uh, we were talking about this before. This is... Um the, there's a contractual relationship here, and, and it incorporates the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the, the law that requires you to pay time and a half for anything over 40 hours and, and to be paid for when you work. And so uh, in this case, they were being not just allowed but required to come in um, before and after their shift to get special equipment and to go through um, like kind of updates on what's going on in terms of security. And, you know, as a lawyer who's gone into jail um, to represent clients, I mean, it's a big production to go into jail. They don't just let you walk in. You have to go through all this stuff. And I'm sure it's similar for the guards. So the the state had taken the position, well, we don't have to pay you for that. And their argument was it was de minimis and so not uh, compensable. And, and the courts, both, as you said, Circuit of Court and the Court of Appeals, said, no, you have to pay them for this. And so it's time and a half, and it's for a couple of years. And as you said, they're still fighting it and it's accruing interest. So I think now it's up to like $130 million, right? I think that sounds about right. Uh, Bill Freivogel, this idea of 30 <laughs> minutes a day, no big deal. Y'all should just do this work without pay. Do you think the state, um, they were wise to take a chance on this one? No, I don't think the state was wise to do that. I mean, you should be paid for your for the time you work. And, and these uh, these guards were uh, corrections officers, uh, you know, were having to put in quite a bit of extra time a week, you know, two and a half uh, hours or more total uh, total time, some of them quite a bit quite a bit longer. Uh, so I, they really should be paid for. I'd like to see the Missouri legis- legislature come up with the money and, and pay them because, I mean, this is a hard job. 
Uh, I mean, it's a thankless job. It's a dangerous job. Uh, you know, very difficult conditions. And, you know, to see us trying to nickel as taxpayers, as the government, trying to nickel and dime them, uh, I, I don't like that. Yeah, so I agree with that. And um, going off of that, I mean, the other thing was that these Missouri Corrections officers were having to respond to emergencies during this time if they were there. So it was basically on duty. The interesting legal issue here was that um, the state is not subject to the FLSA, and so they had... And sorry, what's the FLSA? Fair Labor Standards Standard Act, excuse me, that's a mouthful, um, where they have to get paid overtime for wage and hour and things like that. Um, and so the way the legal issue came out was they had agreed in their union bargaining agreement to follow the FLSA. Hmm. And so the plaintiffs, which were a class of these Missouri corrections officers, actually sued for breach of contract under the union contract for not complying with the FLSA. So it actually was able to bring the FLSA into the fold and um, became a very interesting legal issue. So even their own union contract had this in it. It just seems crazy yeah. that the supervisors thought they could get away and, with this. And as Nicole was saying, because it's under the contract, I think under the FLS- FLSA, typically, is, can't you only go back like six months or something? But because this is a contract issue, they can probably go back to the beginning of the contract. The other thing, we were talking before the show, so I, I, I kind of did some of this law when I was in practice. And you'd have like an employer who would say maybe to the receptionist, you know, the receptionist bus would get them like to work a half hour before the start of their shift. And the employer would allow the receptionist to sit at the at the desk. And then maybe the phone would ring and uh, he or she might answer it. And, and we would always tell them, look, you can't let them do that because if you allow them to sit there and if they answer one phone call or if they start shuffling papers, they're, you're allowing them to work. Not not requiring them, but allowing is enough. And then you you could get hit for all that back time. And so this this case doesn't even seem like a close call. So then we're talking about as much as $130 million now that there's interest on this thing. It's just hard for me to imagine the state of Missouri has that sitting around. What happens if we don't? Well, that's an issue. That's going to be a big issue. But the other thing is the way that they're just fighting this, and it does seem like, I think, a pretty good side for the plaintiffs, the more the interest goes up. And so, yeah, the number is continuing to go up daily. And um, it seems to me that the state probably needs to just figure out how to pay it. Is it possible that the state could default on this payment or, you know, is there some way they can file for proverbial bankruptcy and get out from under this thing? Or are they they're clearly on the hook here? Mark, you, I see no, you looking can't. like the no. The state's not going to file for bankruptcy, but... Um, I guess they, you know, this is the thing when you uh, win a lawsuit. Everyone, you know, nobody at the end of the trial just pulls out a wad of money and hands it to you. (laughs) Although I did do that in one case because that's what they wanted. (laughs) It was settling the case. Um, But, um, yeah, so you you, typically you get a judgment. Then you have to enforce the judgment, which means you either do a garnishment or an attachment of assets. So I guess they could do something with the state, although the state has sovereign immunity. So I don't know how that works. So but, breach of contract doesn't come under sovereign immunity. So that's how they got around, around that. But mm. um, in terms of 
literally finding the money, that may be a legislative issue. Interesting. Well, I hope the Missouri legislature is paying attention because I think this is going to be an issue they're going to have to deal with in the new year, perhaps. Um, If you're listening to our conversation and you have a question or comment for our panel about what we're discussing, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Our panel today is Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, Mark Smith of Washington University, and Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. I want to talk about another case involving the state. This one has to do with Planned Parenthood. And this is not about whether they can keep their license to operate their sole Missouri abortion clinic in the state's Central West End. That dispute is ongoing. This is instead about whether Missouri can deny Planned Parenthood funding. Now, there are 12 Planned Parenthood facilities in Missouri, and only one provides abortion services. The Republican-led legislature passed a law that denies funding to all 12 facilities. This law, which was kind of just tucked into the state's appropriation bill, it says no funds shall be expended to any clinic, physician's office, or any other place or facility in which abortions are performed or induced other than a hospital or any affiliate or associate of such clinic. Nicole Gorofsky, does the state have the right to just tuck that language into an appropriations bill? I don't think so. I mean, I personally think that that's, I mean, legislating is for legislating. Budgets are for then appropriating the money according to what was legislated. This is trying to take a back door into the law. And without actually doing fair legislation, they're trying to say, oh, well, we're just going to put it in the budget that we're not paying for this. And that does not seem like the appropriate procedure. So this is now going to the Missouri Supreme Court. Is there a legal issue here um, that they can sink their teeth into? Well, I think that 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 really is the legal issue. The uh, issue of the appropriations wh- wh- bill. Whether, whether or not, yeah, this isn't really, although we all know it's about abortion. Uh, the, the, the issue is uh, that the, the Supreme Court will be de- would be deciding is can you legislate as part of uh, an appropriations process? And Planned Parenthood argues, uh, Chuck Hatfield mm-hmm. made the argument for for them that no, you you can't you can't do that. And the state, of course, takes the other position. Do you think the court is going to be inclined to be sympathetic to this case here, that procedurally this was just handed uh, wrongly? Mark Smith, what do you think? You know, I, I just don't know enough about this because it's it's um, very technical on this issue of the Constitution and what is purpose on an appropriation bill. So, I mean, I guess um, – I mean, the other thing is, so that's one issue. It's kind of a technical, like Bill said, it's not on this uh, abortion thing. The other thing is, if they lose with this, given the legislature and the makeup, I mean, they'll just pass a bill. So I I don't know that even if if they're defeated in the courts, it's going to matter in the long run. That Planned Parenthood could still lose this funding right. because it's the same body that passed this appro- yeah. appropriations bill. That I mean, I be- guess they could try and make some argument you're treating us different from the other ones, but I think that would be tough to do. Yeah, it's uh, – and, and but the, the thing is, you know, you should, it, we should look at who, who's actually potentially hurt down the road by this, and it's uh, poor, poor women seeking, right. uh, seeking medical care. Yeah, not just abortions. I mean, yeah, these lot, are not abortions is a small part of right. it's. It's just basic health care. Mm-hmm. I mean, state money cannot be spent on abortions. No. 
Right. And that's, I mean, that's right. They, I mean, the legal issue is coming down to, like we've all said here, a procedural issue and whether this is the proper place for this. But it may have ramifications down the line in terms of um, how people can sue under this because legislation is one thing and you can sue on a statute saying it's unconstitutional. But then to do it in an appropriations bill may actually be an end run around people trying to challenge the legislation as well. And so that's concerning. We're talking to our legal roundtable. That was Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law. Um, we're also here today with Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale and Mark Smith of Washington University. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. And now back to our legal roundtable. That's Mark Smith. He's the Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. And Bill Freivogel, a professor at the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. And last but not least, Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law. I want to talk to our panel about a Missouri Supreme Court case involving public defenders. Last year, a man who was convicted of burglarizing a post office, of all places, sued his defense attorneys, and he won a 600000 verdict. Now, the backstory is that Dwight Laughlin had been sentenced to 30 years in prison for the burglary, plus another 10 years. He did 17 years in prison, but in a sort of legal miracle, he was able to persuade the Missouri Supreme Court to take his case even while he was acting as his own attorney, and they ended up overturning his conviction. Now, in his lawsuit against his lawyers, Laughlin says he kept telling them to look at the legal issue that ultimately got him sprung. But they either wouldn't or they didn't, and now he thinks they should pay up. So the Missouri Court of Appeals just ruled for Laughlin. They said the public defenders are on the hook. Now, historically, prosecutors have special protections. If they're working in an official capacity, they have immunity from lawsuits. And I'm wondering, Bill Freivogel, is that true of public defenders? Well, no. And, um, you know, the uh, nor is it, nor would it be true of defense lawyers. So, you know, fa- failing to provide adequate legal counsel can 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 result in a, in a, in a lawsuit. Um, in, in this case, it's sort of interesting that I mean, it was it was a very very technical kind yeah. of legal jurisdiction, I guess, I- issue yeah. uh, because the, it was a crime on a federal property. So the question was, could you really be prosecuted in, in a state court like he was? And he and he was the the defendant was correct in saying no. It had it had to be in a federal court, and for some reason he th- thought he would have gotten easier treatment in a federal court. <laughs> I mean, the one thing that's really interesting about that jurisdictional issue is that. Um, the federal prosecutors weren't interested in taking it at all. Right. So he may not have even been prosecuted <laughs> had the jurisdiction right. been correct. And instead, the state took this and um, he kept bringing it up to his public defenders. And they said, oh, well, we just don't think that's right. And then apparently the court made a finding that they didn't actually research that. And so, I mean, all attorneys are subject to malpractice, and I I think that's just another example. I was a prosecutor for 10 years, and I never saw it done, but 
I don't see why it couldn't be done. This no. seems, though, it seems like such an arcane point. I mean, as, as Bill is saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so we've talked before about the public defender system in the state of Missouri. Right. I mean, these guys are so overworked. Isn't this sort of setting a, a precedent here that if you don't look into some cockamamie <laughs> scheme that your client brings up that well, you could be on the hook? Here, here he was raising it, though. And I mean, and, and so I'm going back into the weeds, too, in this jurisdiction issue just because it's, <laughs> it's, it's really cool. So um, You guys are such lawyers. <laughs> We're yeah. such nerds. This is like, yeah, this is like what lawyers talk about at lunch. So, so this guy, the state comes after him. And like you said, it's federal, but – um, his defender saying, well, yeah, but in 1940, they said both state and the feds have concurrent ju- jurisdiction, which means you can go to either courtroom. Uh, but there was an exception if it was a federal thing that had been constructed be- before 1940 and was <laughs> continuous use. So you've got this really narrow exception. And, and as Nicole said, the, there was some suggestion that the feds weren't going to prosecute. And even if they had, he probably wouldn't have gotten this huge sentence because the state had he had had a bunch of previous state convictions and the and the feds would have just probably given him a couple years at most so so the yeah so yeah he's and he raised this with his lawyers he said this so now having defended you know i got appointed cases with people in prison and they've always got a lot of theories and most of them are goofy but and they're not paying for my time so it's easy for them to say check this and check this but you know, we have to provide good representation. Um, I mean, do public defend? Uh, this is what I don't know. I mean, as a private lawyer, I had malpractice insurance. So if you sued me, my malpractice insurance. I mean, does the does the public defender system pay indemnify their indemnify them? Yeah, indemnify them. It's a really good question. Do do <laughs> any members know. of our panel know, know that? I don't know the answer to yeah, that. Yeah, and I would imagine. I mean, I would think they probably would. Otherwise. Public defenders will start resigning, but it goes right. exactly to what you're saying. They're all understaffed. They're they're overworked, and now they're facing these uh, these you know six hundred thousand dollars judgments. Uh, I might start thinking. Well, I think I'm going to look for a different job. Yeah, I mean, I have some sympathy for this guy spending yeah, yeah. 17 years in prison, but I, I can see the other side of this, yeah. Nicole. Yeah, well, I mean, and to continue the discussion that you know only a lawyer would love, um, <laughs> I think you know. When, as a practitioner's tip, I guess, when you are defending someone in a criminal case and your client is just asking and asking and asking, I would say you put it in there and you say, my client is asking me to raise this. And the attorney doesn't have to take, you know, if they think it's frivolous, they don't have to take personal responsibility for making the argument, but they should still bring forth the argument. Hmm. So there's a way that these public defenders could have covered themselves even without going deep in the weeds on this particular issue. That's right. And in fact, you know, like I said, I did, I actually did criminal appeals for a long time. I've seen attorneys do that. They will write a brief and say, you know, now here are the claims that I don't necessarily, you know, think are the strongest, but that my client asked but me here, to raise. But both his appellate and trial court lawyer missed right? it. And, I mean, it's always, I'm going to be clear, because it's always easy in hindsight to say, you should have True. done this, you should have done that. And who knows if this guy was really saying every day at, or just saying, hey, you ought to see, I, I don't think they have jurisdiction. Well, that's a different thing, along with I didn't do it and um, all these other things. And 
So I would just say that as cool as you may think the ju- jurisdictional issue is, that, <laughs> that really the overall uh, you, you serious, the serious problem here is that the public defender – I mean, as we said several times, Missouri has the, the poorest funding of, I think, every yeah. state of, of public defender system of every state except for maybe Mississippi, hmm. you know, or 49th. That's and, and that's the really big problem behind all this. We've got another case involving the criminal justice system. Um, this time it's allegedly prosecutors behaving badly. On Friday, the judge threw out the cases against two St. Louis police officers who were charged with assaulting a patron at Bomber O'Brien's bar in South St. Louis. They'd scrapped, and the patron later saw the officers approach his van outside the bar. One officer, Schmidt, crouched on the passenger side with a pistol, and the other officer, Olston, allegedly opened a back door and jumped inside this guy's van. So this 22-year-old victim grabbed his own gun. He fled the vehicle. Prosecutors said that the victim's gun went off as one officer slammed him to the ground. The other officer then shot the man from behind as he was trying to move away, according to these charges. Now, Circuit Judge Elizabeth Hogan ruled that prosecutors willfully failed to turn over evidence to, quote, gain a strategic advantage. And in her ruling, she's saying that they apparently sought to avoid revealing the shooting victim's immunity agreement to the grand jury. The assistant circuit attorney, it's Jeff Estes, has told the, had told the court there was no recording of the second grand jury testimony despite what the court is saying is a legal requirement to record it and turn it over in immunity cases. He told the judge he didn't intend to withhold a transcript of the recording. He says he just overlooked it. Nicole, as a former prosecutor, is this is this a clear violation on the part of the prosecutor's p- part, or is this not something that prosecutors generally do? So when I was a prosecutor, and I'm a little older, so we're talking, you know, 15 years ago, um, but... We never recorded grand jury um, hearings, and we never had a a transcriptionist in there either, and that was well within the rules, and I believe that's still well within the rules. So what happens is prosecutors need to turn over exculpatory evidence, impeaching evidence, but this was really neither. So Hmm. this, whether or not you present something to a grand jury isn't in itself Exculpatory. What's exculpatory is the fact that they gave the immunity, right? So that had to be disclosed, and it sounds like they did disclose that. Now, I am not familiar with um, the part that they're they're saying says in immunity cases it has to be uh, transcribed. But I still think your average prosecutor may not. It, it, I'm going to say it's not the biggest crime in the world, and I'm going to say also that this judge didn't think it was the biggest crime in the world despite what she said on the record, because the remedy was to dismiss the case without prejudice, which means the prosecutor can simply refile and there's no harm, no foul. Now, they would have to go back to the grand jury to secure a new indictment, I imagine. I mean, do you think they'll be able to get one if they disclose this this fact that they apparently left out? Well, I guess we don't know for sure, because this went to the grand jury twice, as I think you said. (laughs) And the first time, the first grand jury, which had known about had known about the immunity deal, uh, uh, did not indict. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was only the second one that didn't know uh, uh, that that did indict. But I would argue that even when it goes back to the grand jury, I guess for a third time, (laughs) that they still do not have to present that information. There's no obligation to present that information. Grand jury is a probable cause finding, meaning it's 51% more likely that the crime happened than it didn't. And the prosecutor doesn't have any obligations on him or her of what they must present, except that it must be truthful and good faith. Um, 
So I, I don't necessarily see where the prosecutors can be forced to present this to a third group. So maybe based on what the judge is saying, they're going to have to record this now. But Correct. you're saying it doesn't necessarily change what they have to say in front of this grand jury. Correct. I, I was just going to say, just for the uh, listeners to remember, just because a grand jury indicts you, um, you still have, you still go to trial and, and you still have to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, which is like above 99%. So it's not like this... Um, you know, the, this lower standard that Nicole was talking about. I don't want people thinking that's what's going on here. Right, also, just for the grand jury. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And also this case, you know, it's it also illustrates the ongoing tension between Gardner and the police officers because first, um, you know, this, and I, I can't remember all the facts, but it sounded like there may have been a woman involved or something. And so uh, this this guy who they came out to his van, they were, the police originally wanted him charged, and Gardner refused to issue charges and instead went after the police officers. So the police officers are all up in arms, although, you know, um, I think it, it kind of gives us all pause. I'm not saying it's illegal or, or criminal, certainly not criminal, but the idea that police officers would be in a bar late at night and then all of a sudden go into crime fighter mode after they've probably been drinking, I'm not very comfortable with that. And they did not allegedly at that point say, I'm a member of the police. Yeah, they're just sneaking into this guy's van. You can see how they'd be freaked out. And I I know where this place is. It's it's on a kind of a dead-end street. And while it's a, you know, there's a big shopping mall right next to it, it's, I mean, it's not like you would, it's not particularly well lit and it could be a little scary. The one thing I will say as an issue that got me thinking out of this case is that um, prosecutors and police officers that they work with, I, you know, for my personal ethics, I would rather have that be a conflict case and give that to a different right, prosecutor. A you mean Kim Gardner should have said, my office shouldn't handle this. I think that would have been the right thing to do. Hmm. Bill, what do you think of but that? You mean by a different prosecutor, are you suggesting like Singles County? Well, I mean, I don't. It, nothing says which prosecutor you have to choose. I you think, mean some other, or you could get but, a special prosecutor, right? You can get you? a special prosecutor as well. The attorney general's office has those. So, so do we really want the attorney general's office making this decision? I, I would say no, uh, because uh, take a look at, at the at the role of the attorney general in the case of Lamar Johnson that we've talked about a couple of times before. The attorney general's been doing just about everything possible to make sure uh, you know that, that he doesn't get another. Uh, another bite at the apple. I was also noticing. Um, I was also noticing. This is the same judge, uh, uh, Judge Hogan, uh, who in the Lamar Johnson uh, case went out of her way to make sure that he did not get uh, a new trial, at least at this point. So she she seems maybe pretty skeptical of of the circuit attorney's office at this point. Yeah, she do, she does seem very skeptical because as I read that that Lamar Johnson opinion of hers. I mean, it looked like an opinion that was uh, seeking to get to a particular result. That's interesting. And it sounds like Nicole does have some qualms about her her decision in this case, too, that you feel like maybe um, she was a little too hard on the prosecutors. Well, I mean, look, there's a ethics issue there, but in in terms of the procedural issue, I the, the I don't see where the prosecutor really violated some major rule here. Hmm. But I I really like this idea of referring it to somewhere else. Now, mm-hmm. you can argue about whether the AGs be the right place, but you know, if I mean, oftentimes the prosecutor and the police are looked as as in the same bed, and so there's this perception that they won't be fair, but here we've got kind of a unique situation where prosecutor and the police seem to be at each other's throat. And and so 
um, there's a suggestion it's not be going to not be fair for the opposite reason. So I, I like the idea of going somewhere else. And it could be they could just appoint someone. I mean, that's what happened in the Greitens or the the Tisby. Wasn't that Jerry Carmody got mm-hmm, appointed yes. special prosecutor? And he's not in the AG's office. He's just a private lawyer. Just a uh, random attorney. private lawyer could well, have he, been asked he, to look into this. And he spent this. a long time in the circuit attorney's office. And he's well-respected. Well, and that's ha- it's happening all over the state as we speak. Prosecutors often say, I don't think I'm the best person yeah. to handle this one. Hey, neighboring county can maybe you we trade it. some cases where we each have conflicts. I'm not sure, though, that in in the long run, that it seems to be the circ- one important job of the circuit attorney is to ensure that the police force is uh, is is enforcing the law lawfully uh, and constitutionally. And you know, for for, for her uh, to punt that, uh, I I would not. Feel yeah, but what if it were the that. other case where you thought they were in cahoots with each other? Would you be very would you be saying the same thing if the prosecutor in that case said, so we think the police acted inappropriately, did something criminal, the prosecutor says, no, I'm not going to give it to somebody else. I'm going to do it, and yeah, nothing here. Wouldn't you feel less comfortable with that? Uh, you mean like a, uh, if you had a, like a Bob McCullough-type yeah, prosecutor? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah I mean, man, but, right. I, but I think, you know, there was a remedy for that, wasn't there? And, and, the, and the voters exercised that remedy. For... Well, but that's <laughs> what I think actually maybe is an the opposite argument to what you're saying, because there, I, I have a hard time considering the prosecutor as sort of being the overseer for the police department. They do it in essence by not taking bad cases, but to put them in any more responsibility than that when they don't get to choose who's hired or anything like that is sort of a tough position for a prosecutor's office. I just think that all those people who voted to elect Gardner and who had police misconduct at the top of their mind if they were to suddenly say, see, all these cases are going to uh, the attorney general, uh, Missouri attorney general, who is a Republican and not necessarily uh, showing a great deal of interest in that kind of case, I think that they would feel as though their their, their ballot, their vote was taken away from we're talking to our legal roundtable. That's Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law, and Mark Smith of Washington University. We need to take a quick break. Coming up, we'll talk about a bizarre case involving a St. Louis University physician and his child bride. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. We're here with our legal roundtable. That's Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Mark Smith of Washington University, and Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law. Now, I want to make sure that today, even with all these other really important legal matters that we're talking about, that we don't fail to talk about the downright bizarre case of St. Louis University physician Dr. Ashu Joshi and his child bride. Dr. Joshi is facing decades in prison on charges of receiving and producing child porn and transporting a minor across state lines for sex. But there's one little problem. He and the alleged victim are allegedly married. He's now 47. She just turned 18. Um, At the time they got married, allegedly, uh, she was 16. And she gave an interview to the Post-Dispatch saying that prosecutors need to leave them alone. And so I'm wondering what our panel thinks. Should they leave them alone? Nicole Gorofsky, you've done a lot of sex crime cases as a prosecutor. I have, and that was my specialty. And, in fact, when I was at the federal prosecutor, 
prosecutor's office. I did child pornography cases, and that's at the heart of this issue, which is um, the two were exchanging, I think, pornographic images. Um, Well, I'm not sure he ever sent any pornographic images to her. I think she sent them to him at his request. Um, I mean, this case just has a major ick factor, which is um, one of the things I want to say outright. I mean, this shouldn't be happening. We have laws on child pornography for a reason. Um, It's clear these two got married, whether it's an official marriage or an appropriate marriage or not, um, purely to defend this case and uh, defend against this case, against this criminal conviction. And I mean, there's a reason we have child pornography laws. And as much as we, you know, appreciate the young woman's uh, uh, opinion, she was a child when this happened. And Children can't consent to this behavior, and that's why that law exists. Does it matter if the child porn was produced before or after they supposedly got married? Does that make any difference legally, Bill Freivogel? Well, I mean, it could. It could in the end. I mean, I think one argument that that the that they can make is that there is a, a, a constitutional protection of marriage as a fundamental right. Um, but then, so then the, the state has to come up with, if they're going to regulate uh, marriage, they have to come up with a compelling reason to do it. Child pornography is a pretty compelling reason. I mean, the courts have always been very, you know, very much felt as though that was as about as compelling reason uh, a reason as one could come up with. But so, it also has to be narrowly tailored. It has to be narrowly tailored. So, so how would that apply, say, in a case well, like this? I'd have to think about that. But I do think this idea that this is – if it was produced after marriage, you know, this is – you know, the abortion cases kind of arose out of these cases that focused on marriage. The the Lovings case, the um, the birth control cases, um, Griswold, and this idea of marriage being a fundamental kind of sanctified and the state shouldn't be interfering with that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, so you have this idea if you have two 35-year-olds who are married – sending naked pictures to each other. I think we would say the law shouldn't get involved with that. Mm -hmm. And so now on the other hand, we've had this because child pornography has also been um, in in conflict with First Amendment and the Supreme Court kind of made an exception for it. So Said that we have to come down against this. There is no First Amendment, right? So the laws are really strict. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's... just looking at an image or having images on your computer, you don't have to produce it or anything. Um, so I don't know. This is this would be a tough one. Um, I thought it was interesting. The prosecutors um, at a recent point offered five years in this case, which is very unusually low for somebody involved in child porn. They obviously know they've got kind of a sticky wicket here. Yeah, I mean, whether it falls under a, a real legal problem for the prosecutor or not, I think it loses some jury appeal for sure when we yeah. start bringing bringing the issue of marriage into it. Um, her, now, her lawyer, this is the lawyer for the um, alleged child victim, uh, this woman called it a once-in-a-lifetime case and said this could end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. Bill Freivogel, do you think that's that's a possibility here? Uh, people say that a lot more than it happens. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess I don't think so. <laughs> and just to remind your, your listeners, I mean, you know, uh, Lawyers all the time, you have clients saying, I'm going to take this to the Supreme Court, which, you know, a lawyer here is like, 
I'll spend as much money as I can on this, which is not what you want to tell your lawyer. But the other thing is you don't have a right to go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decides what cases they're going to take, and they only take about 100 a year. So nobody has a right to take it to the Supreme Court. So yeah, They're down to like about 85 a year, and you know there are like pages and pages of thousands yeah. and tens of thousands of cases that have been appealed to the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court just has denied. I want to talk about another case that I think this one does have some national resonance, whether or not it ends up with the actual Supreme Court. But a lawyer who successfully sued Monsanto over its weed killer roundup, he was charged last Tuesday in federal court, accused of trying to extort an unnamed company out of $200 million. That's according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. According to the criminal complaint, attorney Timothy Litzenberg told the unnamed company in September that he had proof that it could be held responsible for manufacturing chemical compounds that Monsanto used to create Roundup. He's accused of threatening to find plaintiffs to sue the company unless it paid him $200 million in consulting fees. Now, this struck me as as pretty similar to the case involving St. Louis native son Michael Avenetti, Mm -hmm. who's accused of shaking down Nike. And I'm also thinking about this case involving David Boyce trying to come to a settlement with what he thought may have been some of the people in Jeffrey Epstein's sex tapes. Um, Where is the line between trying to help people keep things out of court, which a lot of people say is in no one's best interest for these things to end up in court, versus actually shaking someone down. Is there a clear line here that lawyers understand that I just don't? (laughs) Well, so I think this one is clearly across the line. When you are asking for money for yourself personally as the lawyer, that's I think falls in the extortion realm. So the difference is there needs to be an actual victim that you're representing? Well, so so that's the next question is where is that line? If this one if this is clearly over it, then where is that line? And as a plaintiff's attorney, this, you know, sort of concerns me. Um, I mean, you can certainly threaten litigation because that's what lawyers do. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I think you're moving into dangerous territory. I mean, certainly threatening um, we're going to go to the police. That's not ethical, right? Because if something should go to the police, it shouldn't be. Um, bargained for that someone won't report a crime. Um, So, you know, it's difficult to find that line, but I think threatening litigation is clearly on the good side of the line and asking for money for yourself personally in some consulting role is on the bad side of the line. Yeah, asking for a consultant's contract is, is I think you've you've crossed the line at that point. And that that seems to have been involved. That's what's alleged by the Justice Department in the Monsanto case, uh, although Monsanto was not the company. Right. That was being extorted. Um, and, uh, and it's what happened with uh, Michael Avenatti and Nike. I guess I'm wondering, is this something that has been going on over time and we're only now just hearing about it? Or are lawyers finding new ways to cross ethical lines here? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> I don't know if anyone knows the answer, right? Because as no. a practicing plaintiff's attorney, I know I don't do it. <laughs> what do I know about other people in, you know, I've also never had a, a you know, um, major multi-million dollar case against Nike fall in my lap, right? Although I will say I would never do that. But I mean, it's, yeah, it, it may be happening more than we know. And I, I think it's a good thing that it's getting some light. Do you think this is something that state bar organizations should be dealing well, with? Way, I mean, I mean if, if he, particularly if he had a client and came to this unknown company and said, you know, put me on a retainer for $200 million or I'm going to sue you, 
that is a clear ethical violation. Right. He's not representing his clients, and, and the Bar Association uh, would go after him, or the, the, the state Supreme Court. The, um, I mean, I see this kind of also related to um, this idea of private settlements, um, which, you know, there um, a lot of this going on where somebody threatens a lawsuit or maybe even sues, and then it's settled, but the terms of the settlement are are confidential. And I, I suspect the journalists uh, yeah, here we, we don't, don't like, like that. that. <laughs> yeah, don't like that. And, and while I can see why clients want it, um, I don't know that it's in society's best interest, but I think it happens all the time. I mean, so practically that uh, ethical dilemma comes up for me personally all the time because I represent many survivors of abuse and suing perpetrators. And inevitably, the issue of confidentiality comes up. And, you know, our firm as a policy has decided that we do not recommend those confidentiality agreements to our clients because that's what allows abuse to perpetuate, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we can use the Catholic Church as an example of secret settlements allowing um, abuse to perpetuate for years. But at the same time... You use the president. Right, exactly. (laughs) But at the same time... I also have an ethical duty to present everything to my client. So as much as I tell them my personal opinion that I do not recommend these confidential settlements and why, I ha- if it's presented as a part of a settlement offer, I have an ethical obligation to tell my client that. Mm-hmm. Bill, we're talking about how um, journalists don't like these confidentiality. Do you see a growing use of them or do you think this is I've, something that's always been? No, I, I do see. I mean, I, I I can't quantify it right off the top of my head, but my impression is that this has happened more and more as time has gone on, and um, and you, you know it, it sort of flies in the face of the whole idea of of courtrooms being open places and court records generally open records under the First Amendment. Um, so yeah, I'm not at all happy about that. I mean, I think where you begin to get suspicious is where you get these lawyers who have these huge personalities and they just want to be in the limelight, yeah. like Avenatti. And you and, and so you begin to say, think you know, begin to be a little suspicious. And then when you hear what he actually does, uh, you realize, yeah, and, was, and, and they start believing their own press, where they start <laughs> thinking, I am larger in life. I, I, the rules do not apply to me. I'm. I'm a master of the universe, and, man, that always gets you in trouble. Another person we might mention in this connection would be Rudy Giuliani. (laughs) Well, but also David. I mean, David Boys may or may not. The facts are still coming out, and – um, who's our Harvard professor? He's suing. um, Dershowitz. Yeah, Dershowitz. Yes. He's another, boy, I am all that kind of guy. (laughs) And so – um, that's going to be that. That case will continue to fight out. I think over the next couple of months, and I think we're going to find out more facts. We've got this mystery person who said I had all these videos, and then it turned out well, we don't think he had anything, and took everyone in. So who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, and everyone's that- suing each other. So then you get discovery. And it'll be um, really juicy. I, I think. feel like Jeffrey Epstein is the gift that that has kept giving in this last year. <laughs> yeah, all this finally coming right. to light. It's uh, all conspiracy theorists can love different aspects <laughs> of this case. And then, and you had these two lawyers who are really smart lawyers going at each other. So they're gonna. It's all about their reputation. It's not about money or anything. And I mean, I found when you had clients who were fighting. I mean, money is a business decision. It you just cut a deal. But when it's about your reputation, you don't cut a deal, and and that's then it becomes a blood sport. You fight to the end. You fight to the death. That's right. 
Now, switching gears from some of these sex crimes we've been talking about here, um, there's an interesting story that actually came out of the St. Louis Public Radio newsroom um, on Friday. And reporter Julie O'Donohue notes that Governor Mike Parson has acted on just one of more than 3,500 clemency cases. It's an incredible backlog. And it apparently, in fairness to the governor, it way precedes him. This is several past governors have just not acted either way on these. Does the governor have a duty to give people a yes or a no. What do you think, Bill Freivogel? Well, I, I, you know, I don't think he has a constitutional duty uh, to, to do it. Uh, I think it's it is an important role of of any uh, chief executive. It's oftentimes very fraught, as as we see down in Kentucky. <laughs> uh, where, and update our listeners uh, we, on this where situation. the outgoing uh, governor Blevin, I believe is his name, uh, issued 450 pardon, pardons, uh, including some people who were murderers and had uh, attacked children, and not, uh, but but most of whom. Uh, were were in in prison for drug drugs, drugs that and probably didn't need to serve any more time in prison. Mm-hmm. And these are the very people who aren't getting clemency in Missouri. People on these drug cases. They um, they had a stat in that story since 1981. Missouri governors have approved clemency in fewer than 400 cases. They rejected more than 5,600 requests, and there's a backlog of even more. Is this just a state where we do not have the political appetite to give somebody that? that chance at clemency. I don't know whether it's the people of the state, but certainly you can see why a politician would be uh, wanting to punt on these issues, yeah. which is which is essentially what, what our governor is doing by just not addressing it at all, right? Because if you take it up, you have to make a decision, yes or no. If you don't take it up, you can say, oh, sorry, I just didn't have time because there's no requirement that they take it up. Now, whether there's a requirement, you know, ethically to the people of the state for the position of the governor is a different issue. And I think that's what Tracy McCreary was bringing up when she uh, wrote to the governor and said, please take up these clemency cases. So, there's no actual procedural way to force the right. governor to take these up, though. Even the legislature, there's really nothing they could do? Well, I mean, if they pass legislation saying that they have to review them within a certain, certain time, right. I suppose, but that has not happened. That, yeah, even that could be seen as interfering with the governor's powers, possibly. Yeah. And, and, I mean, because it's so, these are so politically fraught, I think you often – you almost never see chief executives – exercising these powers until they're not up for election Until again. they're on their way out. Right. And, right. and also, if you were going to do it, I mean, it's a time-consuming process, I'm sure. You're, you're not going to just say, well, this looks good. You're going you're gonna to have to have people look at it and review everything, and one side's going to present it one way. Um, so like Bill was talking about the Kentucky, um, the, those cases in Kentucky, I mean, the, the one case that I had heard about was, oh, this man killed his child. But then you find out, well, this guy was 17. He dropped the baby. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's not like what I had imagined in my mind. And so – and this guy had already been in jail for, I think, over 18, 20 years. Mm. So it's it's a complicated thing. There's no upside and there's a huge downside. Maybe the only upside is that it might, in some of these cases, be the right thing to do. It's the yes. right thing to do. But no but, political but upside. The down, <laughs> right. But the, the political downside is a Willie Horton ad. Yes. Right. right. If you get it wrong. 
So in just the last couple minutes we have here, I did want to um, – there's an update in the case involving St. Louis County Police Sergeant Keith Wildhaber. We've talked so much about this case. He was passed over for multiple promotions after being told to tone down his, quote, gayness. And in October, he won a $20 million jury verdict. Now the county has promoted him to run a new diversity and inclusion unit. Do you think that's going to have any impact on the post-trial on this case? I know there's a talk about maybe they'll all be in mediation. He's also appealing. Will this matter in either of those efforts? I mean, maybe it will. I mean, I, I, know, I saw that the lawyer, his, his lawyer said it wouldn't. Uh, but that's what you'd expect the lawyer to say. He's not going to give give something away for, <laughs> after after you know for basically nothing additional. Um, so I think it was a, an interesting uh, and you know sort of positive step. I noticed there was quite a bit of some criticism from other from the folks. ethical society. Yeah, and they represent um, black police officers in the St. Louis area. They issued a statement saying that the head of the diversity and inclusion unit should have a strong history of being a champion for racial diversity, right. inclusion, and equity. She, they also say the fact there was no selection process for such an important assignment signals to us the lack of sincerity in the department's commitment to address diversity and inclusion for all its employees. And they, and they also said, and they, they, you never did anything when we complained. About about all these other situations. So, uh, you know, and now I'm probably too cynical, but as a lawyer, if you're entering into trying to settle this degree, why, why would you promote him? Why wouldn't you hold this back as part <laughs> of the, I mean, as this part is of part the, of the deal. The yeah. We will promote you. We will do this and we will, you know, and that, and so now you've given away part of your stuff. You, you think know, they, they played a, a legal a card that would have helped them legally to hold it back? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're doing the right thing. So I get that. And I'm, I support the right, doing the right thing. But um, although I think the Ethical Society raises a really – and I, I suspect it was just a blind spot. Nobody thought about it. They just thought – how can how can we fix this? Well, let's let's put them in charge of diversity. Yeah, that's a great idea, and it sounds great until you, and then when you read the Ethical Society, you think, wait a minute, yeah, you did <laughs> move too quickly. Well, that's the thing. The Ethical Society kind of hits the nail on the head while also saying what was in the back of our minds before. If this was such an important position, why wasn't it yeah. created before this happened? And the fact that it is created now that it has happened and that they've gotten you know publicly shamed for it. You know, is it legit? And I think a lot of that is going to come down to what kind of power and authority do they give to this position? And that remains to be seen. And unfortunately, on that note, we are out of time for today. So I want to thank Nicole Gorofsky of Gorofsky Law for joining us. Thank you. And also uh, Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Thank you for being here. Thanks. And Mark Smith of Washington University. Tomorrow, St. Louis on the Air will be preempted for a special broadcast of Tinsel Tales. That's an NPR holiday tradition. It's an hour-long collection of extraordinary Christmas stories. And before we leave, we want to give a fond farewell to our very own Dennis Owsley. Dennis has hosted our Jazz Unlimited program for more than 35 years. That's more than 1,800 scripted jazz radio shows. And the final Jazz Unlimited show airs this Sunday evening. All of us at St. Louis Public Radio wish Dennis well on his retirement from the show and his relocation to Arizona with his wife, Sarah. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening and happy holidays. I'm Sarah Fenske.